This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron from Biz News. In this episode, Business founder Alec Hogg interviews Discovery South Africa's Chief Executive Officer Hilton Kellner following the company's financial results presentation. Veteran broadcaster Tim Modise speaks to Dr. Jonathan Witt, a South African medical professional who argues that governments around the world, including South Africa, have got it wrong in implementing hard lockdowns against COVID-19. And... Business news reporter Linda van Tilburg picks up with tourism experts on what the government can do to kickstart that all-important sector of the economy. First, the COVID-19 headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Business News. As the number of officially reported COVID-19 deaths in South Africa hovers around the 15,700 mark, President Cyril Ramaphosa gave the country a televised update on government handling of the pandemic. Alongside increased testing, we're improving contact tracing through the deployment of the COVID Alert South Africa mobile phone app and the COVID Connect WhatsApp platform. Effective testing and contact tracing systems will allow us to quickly identify and contain outbreaks before they spread further. I want to make a call this evening to everyone who has a smartphone in South Africa to download the COVID Alert mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. The app has been zero rated by mobile networks, so you can download it without any data costs. Using more mobile technology, particularly Bluetooth, the app will alert any user if they have been in close contact with any other user who has tested positive for coronavirus in the past 14 days. Now, with the further progress we have made as infections have come down, we are now ready for a new phase in our response to the pandemic. We have withstood the coronavirus storm. Now is the time to return our country, its people, and our economy to a situation that is more normal, that more resembles the lives that we were living six months ago. It is time to move to what will become what we call our new normal for as long as the coronavirus is with us. While much economic activity resumed from June, it is now time to remove as many of the remaining restrictions on economic and social activity as it is reasonably safe to do. Following consultations with a number of stakeholders, provincial, local government, traditional leaders, and drawing on the advice 
of scientists and engagements with various stakeholders, Cabinet decided this morning that the country should now move to alert level 1. The move to alert level 1 will take effect from midnight on Sunday, the 20th of September 2020. This move recognizes that levels of infections are relatively low and that there is sufficient capacity in our health system to manage the current need. Just under 30 million cases of COVID-19 have now been reported worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Just under 940,000 people have died worldwide. South Africa has the eighth highest number of cases in the world, with the U.S. registering more than 6.6 million cases and just under 200,000 deaths. India has added over 90,000 new COVID-19 cases, reaching a total of more than 5 million confirmed infections. India lags only the U.S. in COVID-19 cases. A Pfizer vaccine trial shows promising safety signs after more than 12,000 people received their second of two doses. That's according to Bloomberg. U.S. President Donald Trump says a COVID-19 vaccine may be ready within four weeks. We've worked very hard on the uh, pandemic. We've worked very hard. It came off from China. They should have never let it happen. And uh, if you look at what we've done with ventilators and now, frankly, with vaccines, we're very close to having a vaccine. Uh, If you uh, want to know the truth, uh, the previous administration would have taken perhaps years to have a vaccine because of the FDA and all the approvals. And we're within weeks of getting it. You know, it could be three weeks, four weeks, but we think we have a Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer. We have great companies and they're very, very close. American investment bank J.P. Morgan Chase has sent some Manhattan traders home after an employee tested positive. This highlights the challenges of New York City's reopening, says Bloomberg. Thailand will start issuing special visas to foreign tourists starting in October. Tourists visiting the country will have to undergo a mandatory 14-day stay quarantine on arrival at partner hotels or hospitals and adhere to health and safety regulations. Bloomberg reports that COVID-19 is disproportionately killing minority children in the U.S., especially those with underlying health conditions. This is according to a federal report that shows how devastation from COVID-19 among black and Hispanic adults has carried down to their kids. Of around the 190,000 deaths attributed to the virus in the U.S., 121 of those who died by the 31st of July were under the age of 21. This is according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Three out of four were of Hispanic, Black, American, Indian or Alaskan descent. Shares of U.S. drug maker Eli Lilly gained after an interim analysis of a mid-stage study found one of three doses of an experimental neutralizing antibody treatment tested against COVID-19 was able to lower the viral load in patients. The therapy, called LYCOV555, was also able to cut the rate at which infected patients were hospitalized. British Airways, the flagship UK carrier, is expecting to cut as many as 10,000 jobs. That's according to Bloomberg. The company remains in discussions with some labor groups. The pandemic has reversed decades of growth in the aviation industry, shutting down flights and triggering a slump that could see traffic diminished for years, says the news service. Russia has agreed to sell 100 million doses of its Sputnik V vaccine to India. Russia's sovereign wealth fund will cooperate with Dr. Reddy's Laboratories, a local drug maker, on clinical trials and distribution of the vaccine. That's according to the Russian Direct Investment Fund.
Deutsche Lufthansa is preparing for more drastic cutbacks in its global workforce and airline fleet than previously planned. This is as a result of the hoped-for recovery of air traffic fizzling out. A surge in European virus cases has forced Europe's biggest airline to tear up its recovery plan and pare back its ambitions to cope with the deteriorating outlook. Recent rules that forced travellers into quarantine have had a catastrophic effect on bookings, its chief executive told staff at a meeting. Israel will close its schools on Thursday, a day earlier than planned. This is because of a significant increase in coronavirus infections, the Prime Minister's office has said. Next, Biz News founder Alec Hogg speaks to Discovery SA's CEO, Hilton Kellner. Hilton Kellner is the chief executive of Discovery here in South Africa. Today was the release of the financial results to end June, and there was quite a lot that came out of that about the impact of COVID-19, particularly here in South Africa. Perhaps if we could start off on the financial side, on just unpacking those provisions that you made, what provisions are and why it appears as though you were conservative in what you thought could happen as a consequence of, uh, of the pandemic. COVID effect and the provisions um, are, are certainly one of the sort of the, the key elements of the of uh, of this set of results. You know, operationally, the business has been incredibly resilient, um, and you would have seen that the, the sort of the, the operating profit was up nine percent across the the group with some big investments. But offset against that was this three point four billion rand COVID provision, which you refer to. And essentially, you know, I think the, you you say conservative, which is quite a compliment to an actuary. We think it's it's probably sort of what we term a prudent best estimate. So at the end of the, the financial year, on the 30th of June, our actuaries essentially sit down and they look at the sort of the projections, the infection rates, the anticipated impact of COVID on various aspects of our business. So on life insurance claims, as an example, on the sort of economic impact of COVID going forward on our clients' ability to retain their policies, as an example. And on the basis of all of that, they effectively set up a reserve or a provision, as you as you refer to it, to effectively meet all of those anticipated financial effects. And, you know, that's the that sort of rolled up, gave us this globular amount of 3.4 billion rand, but it's representative of a number of different moving parts underneath that. So we do think it's prudent. We think it's appropriate. And we think that it sort of positions us well to meet whatever demands of COVID going forward and, and, and give our, our clients real certainty and comfort. But so far, it appears as though, well, it's a good thing that you've reserved or you put across too much reserves. I'm not sure that I'm really reading this correctly, but it appears as though even in a worst case scenario, you'll have quite a bit extra to go around. So I think the mortality rates that we've observed in South Africa have been at the lower end of sort of global mortality rates as a result of, of COVID. And I think that's that sort of common cause today. About two months ago, when we set up the reserve, you know, I think there was far less certainty around that. And, and this reserve also is effectively out towards the end of next year. So it takes us through to December 2021. So when you look at it, we've utilized about 13% of the life claims provision thus far, as we sort of sit here coming towards the, the middle of September. But that's, you know, that, that obviously is, is still early in the, the sort of the emergence of, uh, of the claim. So, you know, I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty as we go forward. And that sort of that funnel of doubt definitely expands as we, as we look forward. At the moment, it appears to be fairly prudent, but bear in mind, 
a big part of the reserve is also around long-term economic impacts, which I think we are yet to see flow through into, into the economy. So on the one hand, the epidemiology impact has been better than anticipated, but the economic impact, as you say, is still an open question. Just to look back at the impact of lockdown, there's now lots of debate going around to say that it was a mistake, some are saying, because of the way that it's hitting the economy. Discovery doesn't share that view, certainly from what I heard in the presentation this morning. Look, I think hindsight is is, a, is sort of an exact science, but I think the evidence that we see is that the sort of the the lockdown definitely had a positive impact on the ability to treat COVID and for our healthcare system to cope with the uh, with the demands of COVID, and, and was a courageous decision at the time. I think given the information that was that was at hand and the experience across the across the world, so you know I think that that from our perspective there were certainly uh, benefits at a, as you say, epidemiological and, and healthcare level. The economic impacts, I mean, are, are, are self-evident. And that's why I think it's important today to get the economy back to work to its fullest capacity to support SMEs, which is something we are incredibly passionate about and to really sort of execute on the sort of the plans around economic support around the, around the country. That issue of supporting SMEs also came through very strongly this morning where your colleague Adrian Gore, who's the chairman of the SME Fund, was saying that this is particularly close to you guys. Are you seeing yet that small businesses are taking pressure as a consequence of the economic downturn? Because I presume you would see it in how premiums are being paid or or not. So we do see it. We haven't seen it. As much yet on the premium paying side of the business, that's been remarkably stable up until this uh, this point. I think we we see it in some of the other key indicators of you know sort of recruitment into SMEs and and stagnation. So they're not necessarily growing while they're sort of maintaining and surviving. They they aren't necessarily growing, and we see it being very specific. So the hospitality industry, those are areas that obviously have really really been hit hard, and those are the areas that we we're trying to encourage people to really support and and from our from our side we're doing what we can in the sense that you know pay our, our SME suppliers very very quickly ensure that there are no delays and support them as much as possible discovery health has got a 57% market share of all medical health schemes or what we used to know as medical aids in South Africa so what happens with you uh, we can kind of reflect is going on elsewhere in the country as well what we did see was that your surplus in Discovery Health went up significantly. Now, some members would be confused by that, of course, happy, because it means there's more in the, in the kitty. How does something like that happen during a period of a pandemic? We've obviously seen COVID claims come through, but, but on the other side, we've seen a dramatic reduction in other hospital events. So your more elective types of procedures, particularly over that sort of COVID peak period, uh, really dropped to the lowest levels we've ever observed. And the net result of that is that there's been a significant delay in those procedures. So we think that a lot of them will still occur, albeit at a later stage. And I think the surplus that you're referring to will then be utilized to a greater or lesser extent as we go forward. So, you know, I think the sense that we've got is that the surplus that is being generated at the moment, and as you, as you said, you know, that's up to about 26 billion rand of reserves that sit in the Discovery Health Medical Scheme. 
gives a huge amount of comfort and security to our members. But we think that will change as we start to see all of those procedures come back into the system. And the important thing is that we still have to be able to sustain an operating profit or surplus in the scheme or at least break even on a year-to-year basis. Otherwise, you erode those reserves. Now, I think it gives us a strong platform for growth. But, you know, this this year we're almost looking at a two-year cycle in a sense, looking at 2020 and 2021 almost as one aggregate year in a sense when we look at what the experience is likely to be. So it also tells us that people have been staying away from hospitals, fearful perhaps of getting COVID-19. Absolutely. There's no question that, first of all, the entire process of going to hospital is more complex today. You have to be tested. There's the fear factor of going into an environment like a hospital as a result of COVID. But we're seeing that turn around quite quickly now, where people's sort of attitudes are, are changing. And and the hospitals themselves are obviously obviously making much more provision for the non-COVID cases. And so the, the actual capacity itself is is being freed up now. So we are seeing that that return to normal sort of pre-COVID levels quite quite quickly now. It was so interesting listening to Ryan Noach the other evening when we spoke about the extrapolation of roughly a third of South Africans who've actually been infected already, but we didn't know about it. They didn't appear in the in the actual data. Is that one of the reasons that's informing this? I suppose, rational approach of people now saying, well, uh, infections are low, they're not growing to the degree that they were when it was at its worst, and we can go back and have elective surgery. Is that what you're picking up from your memberships? I think that's entirely the case. And the fact that there's actual capacity, doctors that weren't able to practice in their hospitals, as an example, are now able to. There's certain professions that were considered high risk Think about like maxillofacial surgery, sort of actually working in a patient's mouth, as an example. That would have been considered very, very high risk from a COVID perspective. So I think it's a bit of the supply and demand on both sides, and that's what's really now uh, fueling the turn. So I think from our perspective, I think the, the, the reduction itself was an abnormal one, um, and in many instances could also have had negative consequences for, for patients you know, that needed care but didn't seek it at that point in time, and that leads to, to further complications down the line. And we saw that with people not necessarily taking their medication timelessly or collecting their medications, and that has negative long-term consequences. So the fact that people are now getting the care that they need is really important. Hilton, what about the potential for a second wave? We read in the Sunday Times in the weekend, uh, one of the Department of Health experts telling us that He's worried now that it could hit us again. There could be a second wave here in February, March next year after the holidays. How are you reading that? First of all, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. I think the, this is uncharted territory to a large extent. But by all accounts, you know, the steps that have been taken here around social distancing, the use of masks, and it just the general sort of approach to, to health and safety has been quite extensive. So hopefully through the identification of members of society who are, who are higher risk, and therefore need to take greater precautions, hopefully will will sort of reduce the impact of a second wave. And we're seeing that in many countries globally, you know, an increase in numbers infected, but not necessarily a commensurate increase in, in death rates or mortality. So that would indicate to a certain extent that it's younger people that are being infected and people with lower comorbidities, because people that are at higher risk and more vulnerable are taking the necessary steps to protect themselves. And so I think the combination of these factors hopefully gives us confidence that if there is a second wave, it's certainly not as acute and serious as the as the first. 
And if you go back a few months to when the pandemic first started, it's a little bit like what we've got you would have bought if you could have at that point in time. Why do you think it's been a better outcome than many feared? So I think that is where we do give credit to the government in terms of the early lockdown. It did buy us time. Um, and, and I think there, there's no there's no doubt about that. I think there's been a lot of learnings around the actual treatment protocols around COVID. So we've seen month on month since March through to today, significant reductions in the, the average length of stay of a COVID patient in hospital. Now, that's come down about 60%. So the ability to treat COVID in hospital is improving. There's about a 50% reduction in the number of cases that require sort of high acuity interventions. So half the number of cases that we're observing today relative to, to four or five months ago actually need to be taken into high care ICUs or, or ventilation. So we, we're actually catching COVID and treating it properly up front and earlier on. And then there's been a, about a 25% reduction in the mortality rate of those that are actually admitted to ICU. So we're catching it quicker, treating it better, getting people out of hospital sooner. And even in the cases where they do get to the most severe levels, there's an improvement in, in survival rates. So we do attribute a lot of that to our ability to start the process later than the rest of the world. We've applied a lot of those learnings, and I think that's, that's often missed in the debate. So the next step, the next challenge is now the economy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's where the focus needs to be, and that's, that's why we are so focused on the, that sort of SME sector in particular, because that's where we see the opportunity for, for growth in employment and jobs. Large corporates, you know, I think hopefully have got, have got stronger balance sheets and, and the ability to sort of raise capital in a more formal manner. But it's the SMEs that will really need our support as we, as we sort of emerge from, uh, from the pandemic. Next, Tim Modise chats to Dr. Jonathan Witt, a medical professional, about whether governments have been right to implement strict hard lockdowns. COVID-19 pandemic around the world led to nations to be placed under severe restrictions. In most cases, people were restricted to their homes and the economic activity was restricted. And South Africa is one such nation. But one of the outspoken critics of these measures is Dr. Jonathan Witt, who is an anesthetist in the public sector here in South Africa. And he has made his case well known. I caught up with him to explain to me why he always felt and thought that the COVID-19 predictions about deaths and the rates of infection were grossly exaggerated. And Jonathan, thank you very much for talking to me. Tell me a bit more about your views regarding COVID-19. So I think what happened here was panic, which set in uh, late in February and early in March. We know very well that the was a limited information sharing on the part of the Chinese and uh, the WHO, who up until the 15th of January denied there was any possibility of transmission of this virus between humans. And up until the end of 2019, if you'd read any documentation from the WHO, the CDC, the European CDC, any of these uh, large national and multinational public health organizations, their policy had always been that lockdowns don't work. Lockdowns are not the way to deal with pandemics. And for some reason, 
this year, and I suppose there's, there's many uh, theories on why this happened, that the world's kind of panicked. Uh, one of the reasons, in my view, that this happened was modeling done initially by several people, but the prominent one is certainly the Imperial College model done by Professor Neil Ferguson, who, if you go into his history, has uh, been doing health modeling for quite some time, has almost always been wrong, and he's been wrong by several orders of magnitude. He produced a paper which said that this virus was going to cause damage and death worldwide. We're talking about numbers of north of uh, 2.5 million people dead in the United States, north of 500,000 dead in the United Kingdom, and uh, obviously you can apply that metric elsewhere in South Africa. The initial numbers were in excess of 300,000. That paper went to the White House, it went to Downing Street, and it was distributed across governments in Europe. And within 10 days, most countries had embraced the panic. The media had, of course, fueled this fire. And the public listening to both their governments and the media had then created a feedback loop to their governments, to the politicians saying, do something, we're all going to die. And as a result of that, uh, we entered into these draconian lockdowns, never before done in human history, to try and deal with a virus, a pathogen which has been on the planet for hundreds of millions of years, which uh, humans have had to deal with for millions of years, and our ancestors had to deal with for the hundreds of millions of years before that. And for the first time ever, we engaged in this unnatural approach, which was both ascientific and just didn't follow the basic biology of what viruses are, how viruses operate, and how they work. I think that many people would argue that in the beginning not much was known, and when voices like myself in early March said we shouldn't be following this route, I was basing that on feeling more than fact. And so the initial period of lockdown, the initial approach may have been correct, and I suppose we can have those debates. The problem is, is that as time has gone on, and we do know the facts about this virus, we do know things such as the people most affected are elderly people, not young people. Uh, we do know that the advanced methods uh, needed to treat the virus we thought of in the, in the beginning, for example, ventilation, is not the strategy to follow. We do know several treatments that help to make the disease not progress so severely. Given all that knowledge now, our reaction being the same now as it was in March is completely and wholly inappropriate. As I'm talking to you now, Jonathan, I mean, the lockdown level two has been extended by another month to October the 15th. Do you think that's reasonable? No, I don't think it's reasonable. I mean, my personal view is that we should no longer be in lockdown. I have a number of reasons for that. The first being is the way in which I understand viruses to work, which is essentially that when you have a novel virus exposed to the human species, what will happen is the virus, certainly respiratory transmitted viruses, will spread amongst the population and they will continue to spread. And the idea that you can stop the spread is uh, completely false. The idea that you can slow the spread is highly debatable. And essentially, you need to reach a point where the virus becomes endemic or you have a, and that would be a herd immunity, or you have a false herd immunity, which you create by using a vaccine. 
Just on a side note about the vaccine, we've never been able to develop a vaccine to a coronavirus. We've tried. We've been trying for more than 20 years now and have so far failed. The idea that we will develop a coronavirus vaccine within six months or a year is probably untrue. If we do manage to, and this is being shown in the Oxford trials already, if we do manage to, the side effects from the vaccination will be uh, relatively severe in certain cases, and the vaccine itself will not be as effective as we would like it to be. At this point, it looks like the best trials are showing about 50% effectiveness. So that's an understanding of how viruses work. What we really need to happen with this virus and what is happening, whether we like it or not, is the virus is tearing its way through the population. And so what will happen is once it has been through a certain percentage of the population, and the theory is from the the scientists I uh, very much read, is 15 to 20% of the population needs to get this specific coronavirus before we reach what's called a herd immunity threshold. Once we reach that, the virus will still be around. It will still be possible to catch it. And in theory, yes, obviously, it will still be possible that people will die from it. But the volumes will be far, far less. And so it will just become an endemic virus, like all viruses are, like our annual flu or like any other respiratory viruses that we have within populations. So that's why we shouldn't really have lockdown at all. In terms of lockdown too, look, at this point, we've reached the silly with with lockdowns. There's almost no logic to what's going on. You cannot have a gathering of 51 people because at that point, the virus comes out of its hiding place and attacks all 51, but 50 is perfectly fine. You can drive in vehicles with certain numbers of people, but not others because at the threshold, it becomes too great. You have to socially distance at the airport before you board your aircraft. But once you're on the aircraft, you can sit side by side with uh, your fellow passengers. These are all completely irrational measures, and they have no bearing on anything. And over and above all of that, even if you believed that these things are helpful in some respects, at what point do we de-escalate this? Because we have had a waning virus in South Africa now for several weeks. Hospital admissions are down to pretty much close to to sort of May-June lows, so before our peak, which happened in July and into August. And and really, I I cannot see any justification to continue the lockdowns other than for political reasons and out of fear, really. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. BizNews reporter Linda von Tilburg interviews Professor Alex van den Heerver, the Chair of Social Security Systems Administration and Management Studies at the University of the Witwatersrand and tourism expert Gillian Sanders for an update on what the government should do to kickstart that sector of the economy. The tourism industry has been hit hard by the COVID-19 lockdown and it has campaigned since June this year that the industry was ready to reopen with the slogan, South Africa is travel ready. There has been some relief when the decision was made on the 18th of August to reopen provincial borders. It is expected that the government will announce in the coming days that the country will go down to level one of the lockdown. The tourism industry says this should include the opening of international borders as it is critical to South Africa's economy. The industry has received the backing of WITS Professor Alex van den Heerfer, the Chair of Social Security Systems Administration and Management Studies at the WITS School of Governance. 
Biz News spoke to Professor van den Heerfe and tourism expert Gillian Saunders, a former ministerial advisor, who both said they believed that open international borders did not pose an additional risk if the right health protocols were in place. Professor van Anierfe, you made a strong case that there's no public health reason not to fully reopen the country for international travel. Do you expect that the government, when it goes down to lockdown level one, that it would not open the international borders? I certainly hope that they will be announcing that the borders will be opening. I think, as Gillian indicated, opening these borders is not immediately going to result in a huge surge. So it basically gets government out of the way of getting the industry back on track. Demand is still going to struggle. There are many challenges, but it would be better that the industry tries to face those challenges without having to deal with the obstructions at the border and to be able to travel freely. It's up to the industry to be able to market their uh, safety levels and to demonstrate that it is a safe option for people. It will be very important for South Africa to make sure that from an international travel perspective that the summer holidays, the South African summer holidays, do peak as far as we can. The people are making their plans now for that period. And if we create uncertainty now, they're going to go somewhere else if they are considering these kind of longer traveling distances from Europe. So I think that it's really important that we put people in a, in a good position to both plan their holidays and for people to market knowing that there will be a buildup over time. So this does not immediately place any part of the system at risk. It will be gradual. But the longer we wait to open, in fact, it pushes out the, the time period at which the industry can actually get its act together again. So really, the sooner the better. But I do expect that it would be a huge mistake by government not to open in its next announcement. So, Jillian, your message is that South Africa is travel-ready. Absolutely, we're travel-ready. And I, I echo what Alex is saying. We, we would like the borders opened. We don't think there should be any sort of staggered opening. Sometimes we hear talk of business travel only. That's not a good idea. The planes are not going to be full enough with any business travelers. We hear regional first and then international. There's an incredibly important symbiotic relationship between regional air travel and international air travel. A lot of Africans connect by South Africa to travel internationally out of the continent. About 23% of our foreign tourists, about 600,000 a year, arrive in Joburg and then travel to one of our neighboring countries or another static country. That could be 100,000 packs a day um, flying either in or out. So the airlines operating internationally in and out of the overseas markets to Joburg and the airlines operating out of African markets to and from Joburg need each other. The seats are filled by both parties and connecting passengers. And our domestic airlines, a lot of the demand on our domestic airlines is actually international guests who arrive in South Africa and travel domestically on airlines while they're here. So opening up part of the industry for which there is no public health reason not to open the entire industry just doesn't make sense. So we would ask government that they open up everything, all the borders at the same time. You know, we can operate the airlines, tell us they need two weeks notice to get flights on the route. We've seen a lot of literature in our industry and we have trade at the coalface in in our international generating markets to saying South Africa is actually at the top of the list of countries people want to go to. There's been a couple of international surveys, one most recently in the USA in a luxury travel market asking people who wanted to travel, when did they want to travel and which destination. South Africa was the number one choice destination. And part of the reason for that is they know that the experience in South Africa is predominantly outdoors in a warm sunny climate 
and, and not in crowded spaces. We're not a mass nightclub destination. We're not a mass beach destination. We take tourists and we spread them out over the country. So we know our, our product are very excited about coming here. And then there's another very important market that we'd like to welcome as soon as possible. They call the swallows. So they tend to be people from Europe and a little bit from the USA who come here for three months. They'd come for longer if, if they could, but the visa doesn't allow them. But they come for three months of summer here when it's their winter. These are the people who are even going to be a little bit resilient if there were, for instance, quarantine regulations, which I think we should talk about. Really, they come here every year for three months. They have their own home or they rent a place for three months. They're great spenders. Yes, they're not spending as much on accommodation, but it'd be wonderful to welcome them back to our shores. They're the resilient travelers who will definitely come here. So we won't see a lot of demand, but we know the trade is telling us people are interested in South Africa. Our businesses in this country and the tourism industry who hold a forward order book have not cancelled their orders. Most of them have still got business on their books that goes from October onwards because the client who wants to come in October and the business in South Africa, of course, has held that on the books in the hope that the borders would be open. Should the government agree to open international borders, are you worried that there would be the requirement of a quarantine period for international travellers? There might be a tendency in certain countries for a kind of an overkill. Certainly, I've proposed that people consider within the South African context is an alternative to the quarantine, is to find ways of substituting, substitute prevention methods, such as pre-travel testing, for instance, and uh, easy access to testing while people are in the South African context. That coupled with essentially all parts of the travel industry treating everybody as if they're positive. You don't assume that people are uninfected and despite the fact that our infection and prevalence levels have come down, doesn't mean you're not at risk of super spreading. And what you're seeing now, that resurgence in a lot of Europe, is a lot of people going into pubs and staying late and particularly with university cities opening up, and you have super spreading events. Now, it's quite possible that in the South African context, if we continue to manage the epidemic the way we are now, that we limit those risks on those sort of high-risk settings, a high-risk transmission setting, we will contain the epidemic going forward. What we should not do is relax. Now, we can keep the economy open and not relax. And uh, what they've done in those other settings is that they've relaxed and opened the economy. It's not the open economy that's causing the problem. It's the fact that people are assuming that the risk is gone. And it hasn't until we've got a vaccine. In South Africa, the evidence appears to suggest that we have high levels of herd immunity, which is an interesting finding in a lot of uh, localized contexts. That's sort of very high risk, densely populated areas got a lot more infected than and people originally thought. And that actually in itself acts as a barrier to a resurgence of the epidemic because that would be a major vector for spreading the ep epidemic in multiple settings. Now, a lot of other European countries are not in that position. They actually did prevent the epidemic from taking off and therefore they have a large residual uninfected population that's at risk if they go into a pub and uh, go to a sporting event, go to a Trump rally. If they do that in an indoor setting without uh, proper ventilation, without masks, they're going to get infected. One person is going to infect 100 people and you'll immediately have a resurgence. So there's, a, I think, the issue is South Africa does appear to uh, directly and indirectly be in a position to indirectly and directly manage the epidemic going forward, but we can't relax. Mm -hmm.
This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.